Good afternoon and welcome to KFSK News. I'm Hannah Floor. Petersburg School District Secondary Schools will be looking at ways to make schools safer and more secure. The move comes after two recent unrelated threats made to the schools by students. Secondary Principal Brad King made the announcement in an email to parents of secondary students on September 30th. KFSK joined King at the entrance to the Petersburg High School to talk about planned changes. King says that while the move is partly in response to the recent threats, it is also related to the national trend of school shootings. We're looking at all the different variations that can impact how we look at uh, the security of the school itself. Not just looking at things that occur locally, but things that occur within the state and nationally as well. Trying to learn from what's happening all over the place. Sure. It's important to learn from everybody else's experiences so you don't have to repeat them. We're standing right here at the front doors of the Petersburg High School. And um, you sent out this email. And in the email you said, in light of current events, we are examining protocols and procedures concerning school entry, access points, and schedules. Um, and you, one of the things in that list was rethinking school entry. So can you tell me a little bit about what you're rethinking right here? Well, I think uh, schools are designed to be welcoming, and our world doesn't necessarily allow that as much as we'd like it to. So we have a lot of glass here in the front. We need to consider how to mask that better, how to control that access point so that it's just not an open-ended invitation to anybody to walk in at any time. So I think what we're looking at there is we're, you know, we're going to, as we have already done in numerous locations, we're going to lock the doors at certain times and then work to find a way to grant access to people as they are vetted coming in. We're looking at, you know, people basically ringing a doorbell or buzzing if they want to enter the school. And also maybe doing some smoke, smoking the glass on the windows a little bit so that it's not just an automatic look in and you can see whatever's going on so how do you decide what changes need to be made and whether they need to be made well i mean you have to look at the facility you have i mean like i said schools were designed to be open access locations so you have an enormous number of doors that anyone can walk in or they can tap on the glass and someone will enter so as we look at it we have to think where can we reduce traffic that is not easily observed Um, we have to look at a little bit of retraining on the kids that just because someone taps on a door it doesn't mean you open it Uh, if you don't know who they are and there's not a faculty or staff member right there saying that's okay go ahead and open that door probably shouldn't open it So we're going to try to retrain the kids in that category. We also need to kind of train the community that when you come in to the school, you do need to check in with the office. Even if you get buzzed in or the door gets unlocked by a faculty member to let you in, you still need to check into the office because we need to know not only which students are in the school, but what adults are in the school at any given time. And so we're going to try to do some signage that will direct people, please go to the office. And also, like I said before, direct the students not to open doors when there's somebody knocking on it. So, Another thing that you said you'd be re-examining in that email is scheduling. How does that play into it? We realize that the community has 
needs to drop off kids to school at certain times. We're trying to avoid mass groups of kids outside the school prior to the school day. Our, our teachers come to work at 7.45, but classes currently don't start until 8.15. So you have a 30-minute block of time there where you either have a large quantity of unsupervised students wandering around the, inside the school or a, or a pile of them stacked up outside of the school. Neither one of those situations is really a good idea. So what we're trying to do is we're looking at a schedule which starts school and I'll be sending something out to parents and things on this. Classes will actually start at 8.05 instead of 8.15 thereby allowing us to open the school doors at 7.45 and the kids can come in as soon as they get here and then they'll go to their classes and get set up to go. Have you talked to students and staff about how they feel? Do they feel unsafe? I, I have not had a lot of students express to me any problem with that. I think, uh, I think everybody gets a little anxious at times. Uh, the more that we're proactively looking at ways to get out ahead of things before they happen uh, and work on them, I think that puts some people's minds to ease. I think uh, it, it depends on the person, their stress level. Uh, some are going to experience it more acutely than others. And we're, we're open door, and we've also had a debriefing sessions open to people so they could come in and sit and express how they felt. We're hoping that we'll continue that kind of interaction with the students and the staff so that they can not feel like they need to bottle it up if they're feeling something at the moment. How long do you expect these changes to take? We're going to get as many of them in place as fast as possible. Some of them will require some additional construction work to finalize them so we will probably be seeing that going on over the next year or so. Uh, I know that there is a set of plans to restructure our office area so that we have more access to visibility of the outside and the front doors. Um, I'm not sure where that fits on the CIP uh, project list and where the money for that comes from but until we can accomplish that, we're going to do other things that are interim fixes, additional cameras, additional uh, monitoring that will allow us to control it until we can make it more efficient for ourselves. Is there anything else you want to add? Uh, other than I, I've enjoyed how well our staff and student body reacts to situations, how good they are to to work with us and uh, and I still think this is probably one of the safest schools I've been in in my entire career. That was Petersburg Secondary Principal Brad King speaking with KFSK. Petersburg School District Superintendent Erica Klutpainter also discussed the plans during yesterday's regularly scheduled meeting of the Petersburg School Board. A recording of that meeting can be found at kfsk.org. Federal officials are looking into the deaths of nine orcas that were hauled up by groundfish trawlers in Bering Sea and Aleutian Island fisheries this year. As Hope McKinney reports from Unalaska, conservation groups say more needs to be done to prevent such deaths. According to NOAA Fisheries, a tenth whale was released alive. But the nine other orcas incidentally caught in trawl nets this year weren't so lucky. NOAA Fisheries is analyzing collected data to determine the cause of injury or death and determine which stock these whales belong to through a review of 
genetic information that was collected. That's Julie Fair, public affairs officer with the federal agency's Alaska office, reading from a statement published late last week. She declined to be interviewed except to read the statement out loud. Killer whales are protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. It requires boat owners or operators to report the deaths and injuries of the mammals during commercial fishing and survey operations. Fair says NOAA Fisheries monitors bycatch of protected species to determine whether the animals were dead before being caught or were killed or seriously injured by commercial gear. The vessels involved in these incidents weren't named, but Fair says the boats involved were all required to carry two federal observers on board. This isn't the first time killer whales have been caught in trawl gear off Alaska, but the numbers seem high this year, according to Sherry Tarantino, head of the advocacy group Orca Conservancy in Washington State. Nine, ten killer whales is too many. You know, and if this is just this year... <laughs> You know, something needs to be done in the future to mitigate these atrocities. Chris Woodley is head of the Groundfish Forum, the Seattle-based association that represents Bering Sea trawlers. He declined to be interviewed, providing a written statement to KUCB instead. In it, he says that vessels are experimenting with gear modifications that may prevent whales from entering trawl nets. He also says that the Amendment 80 trawl boats voluntarily stopped fishing on September 9th, with more than three months left in the season because of the orca bycatch. Fishing boat encounters that harmed or killed orcas in Alaskan waters were rare until 2020, he added. But in 2023, captains have reported an increase in the number of killer whales near their vessels. They appear to be feeding in front of the nets while fishing, a behavior not previously documented according to the Trawlers Group. Tarantino from Orca Conservancy says it's important to protect orcas for future generations. We're not saying stop trawling, even though I think trawling is unbelievably devastating to the ocean animals and, and the beings that live there. But if we continue taking this bycatch, is just insane. I mean, it's destroying our future, in my opinion. You know, if the ocean goes, we go. Biologist Deborah Giles is the science and research director for a nonprofit called Wild Orca. They do conservation research on a highly endangered population of killer whales that roam from California to southeast Alaska. She says she wasn't surprised when she heard about the nine orca deaths. I was glad that they were finally recognizing it publicly. Of course, my cynical brain wonders how often this is happening when it was not reported or at least not released publicly, and I'm very glad that this is going to be investigated. Giles says the industry needs to figure out a safe way to keep animals from interacting with fishing vessels and reduce bycatch of non-targeted species. We'd ask NOAA to come up with some new protocols from ensuring that this doesn't happen again in the future. NOAA is responsible for marine mammals like killer whales, and they're also responsible for making sure that the fisheries are not jeopardizing non-targeted species. And bycatch is something that, especially in the trawl industry, trawling bycatch is massive and it's, it's unsustainable. Initially, what we need to know is what are they doing about this? What steps are going to be taken to minimize this? NOAA says they're working quickly to evaluate these incidents and will share findings as soon as possible. Reporting for KUCB, I'm Hope McKenney. The board governing Alaska high school sports voted Monday to ban trans girls from competing on high school sports teams that match their gender identity. The Alaska School Activities Association Board of Directors voted 5-3 to 
to limit participation in girls' sports to athletes who are, quote, assigned female at birth. The ASAA executive director, Billy Strickland, said that he only knows of one instance of a trans girl competing in Alaska state championships against other girls. Has it been an issue in our state championships uh, from a safety standpoint? We haven't seen that yet. Uh, from a competitive standpoint, you could make the argument that, you know, the student displaced other kids off the podium. ASAA's board originally considered the move in May, but waited until the Board of Education unanimously voted to ban trans girls from girls' sports in August before changing their bylaws on Monday. The bylaw change takes effect immediately. The reason that I strongly recommended to my board of directors to amend our bylaws is we feel like if we could not or did not do so, then public schools would not be able to join ASAA or any other association unless that association made the, you know, put into place what we just adopted. So we don't want to see sports come to a scratching halt uh, while this probably works its way through the court system. Currently, 19 states have active bans on trans girls from competing with other girls, and four other states have similar measures being challenged in court. The Matanuska Susitna Borough School District bans trans girls from competing in girls' sports in 2022 and has been the only district in Alaska that prohibited trans girls from competing on teams that matched their gender identity until Monday. The Central Council of Hlinka and Haida and the U.S. Forest Service have partnered to develop new educational resources for the Mendenhall Glacier that will focus on Alaska Native culture. Hlinka and Haida President Richard Shaleish Peterson said the tribe is excited to share their values and history with nearly one million tourists who pass through the Mendenhall Visitor Center each year. The people who want to go there want to learn about the glacier and the area. They also want to learn about the people and the, the true history. And, and if you know anything about Thinket culture, we have songs, stories, history about migrating over, under, and through the glaciers. The focus on education is likely just the first step in a larger partnership. Last week, the agency and the tribe signed a memorandum of understanding, which outlines a commitment to collaboration on resource management and planning for the Mendenhall Glacier Recreation Area going forward. Kevin Hood manages the Tribal Relations Program for the Forest Service in Southeast Alaska. He said the agreement builds on the agency's effort across the region. We are overdue for having better representation of uh, the Alaska Native perspective. As part of upholding our nation-to-nation relationship with these sovereign tribal nations. According to Hood, the agreement could pave the way for future collaborative projects on trail maintenance, watershed restoration, and the management of fish and wildlife in the area. But in the short term, Peterson says the priority is incorporating more Tlingit culture, history, and language around the glacier. That will likely mean updates to signs and displays on trails and in the visitor center, and more tribal citizens working as educators and guides on site. Who better to tell our story than us? You know, Aquan people talking about Aquan. The Forest Service and the tribe will start to work on those new educational programs sometime this fall. For KFSK, I'm Hannah Floor.